so I'm gonna talk to to, uh, to Baz, the blue-haired wonder. I call him the blue-haired wonder. I don't know if anybody else calls him that. His name is Michael Balzer, but we all know him, and we all know and love him as Baz. Baz works for a company called Bizark, and he's an attractions theme park, theme park attractions entertainment guy. Hey. Hey, Bob. Hey, I can't see you yet. Let's see, are you on a video yet? Oh, there you are. I am. Awesome, cool. So it's, uh, what time is it there? Is it like nine o'clock in the morning or something? It is, it's nine o'clock in the morning. And what's the temperature like? Well, I can say it out the window here. We got a, oh no, I can't see it. Uh, it's three degrees Fahrenheit. Oh! <laughs> okay, so so for those of you in the in the viewing audience, Baz is in Detroit. And, uh, and uh, what are you actually doing there today? Uh, I'm here for a week of uh, music recording sessions. Um, I'm working with the, uh, the team at Yesi and Music here in Detroit, and we're laying down some uh, very specialized uh, audio. Um, been doing some stuff with uh, Asian music, with African music, um, and with choral regions. So we've been parading in a bunch of. Uh, uh, really specialized musicians, uh, jumpy drummers and leading drummers and balafonists and musical saw players and fiddles and banjos. It's just been a super weird, awesome week. <laughs> That's cool. That's really awesome. You're yeah. meeting all these great people. What a great life. So, so, um, ladies and gentlemen, this is Baz, uh, Michael Balzer. He's he works with a company called Bizark, and he. This is I'm videotaping this interview, of course, and. Um, it's actually the paper I sent you says it's for Bob Asodes, but it's not. It's actually for Bop Asodes, which is B O P, and it stands for uh, Born on Purpose episodes, right? Um, Because one of the challenges in my life was figuring out what the hell I wanted to do with my life. (laughs) So I figured uh, one of the things that helped me was to to get to know people that kind of figured it out and are on a path and that are successful and doing great stuff. And and in my opinion, you're one of those guys, Baz, so I thought it would be nice to interview you. So so that's where I kind of want to start is... How'd you know? Tell us a little bit about your history and kind of what happened and stuff like that. And what I'm really kind of interested in, and I want people to focus on maybe, and I didn't ask you this, I probably should have forewarned you, but was there a point in your life? Was there some epiphany, some event, something that happened that made you go, man, this is what I want to do, or this is my purpose. I mean, did you come out of the womb yeah. thinking I want to be an attractions guy? Or, or how did it all work out? <laughs> well, but I, I guess no one really comes out of the womb knowing they want to be an attractions guy, right? Like, <laughs> uh, probably like most people in this business, I didn't know it was a business until I was already well into like my, my first creative career. So... Um, when I was growing up, I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, there's a tiny little amusement park in Pittsburgh. It's actually a trolley park for theme park nerds um, <laughs> called called Kennywood. It's actually on like the national list of historic places. It's one of the oldest continuously operating amusement parks in America, and it has a very like unique aesthetic and. Um, it's very tied to its like historic roots, you know. Um, and I would go there every year as a kid, and I loved it. And you know, I didn't make my first trip to Disney, the Disney parks, until I was like 11 or 12, and I loved that too. And um, 
so I, I'd always appreciated and really loved the experience of these places, but I never took the time to understand that there were, you know, people that had to make them. It's a no-brainer <laughs> now, right? Sure, like, sure. Of course, someone has to. Someone's got to design the roller coaster. Someone's got to <laughs> build the queue. Someone's got to put the signs up. Like there's a billion people that work on these things, but they're very invisible in the park industry. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So it was just a thing that I enjoyed doing as a kid. And then I, I got the creative bug when I was like in middle school and did like a couple of middle school plays. And I was like, oh yeah, this is it. This is, the, this is what I want to do. So I became like a theater oriented person. And I jumped in with both feet. So I, was, I went to like a performing arts high school. I went and did a BFA program for college. Uh, I, after college, I like toured France doing pretentious European neo mime shows. And, like, <laughs> so, was, were you one of those mime like, guys that everybody hates? You know, <laughs> I, I was, but not for the same reason that everyone hates normal mimes. So, I, I didn't do a whole lot of like you know uh, white face and black and white striped shirts and right. pretend to have a, a rope. But uh, we did like. We did this weird uh, a play called *Lemiclis Le Megalith*, which was a, a, a movement theater story about the megalith alignments in Karnak and in Brittany, wow. in France. Uh, so it was really like spiritual and bizarre and weird, and had a lot of avant-garde music to it. And like that was the kind of miming I did. So everyone hated that. You know, um, <laughs> well, that sounds like, I mean, that sounds almost cultish, you know, I mean, in, in its kind of, uh, its sense, you know? Yeah. So yeah, I guess what I can say is like, I, I, in my early stages of my like, theater career, I like found like a little nugget of a thing that was really peculiar and would really get lashed onto it and fall in with like that specific thing. Like I didn't care to do guys and dolls. I wanted to do the weirdo mime theater. Right. And then... After that, I started doing uh, comedy, uh, sketch comedy, and again, it was like, I am the kind of comedy I want to do. Like, I'm going to dig down and do this, like, really specific kind of comedy, and I did that for, like, 12 years. Wow. Um, and... Yeah. So, so it's, it's you, a story. It's a, bit, it's a bit sideways, but like no, but you uh, you spent a ton of time actually kind of honing your skills in front of an audience. I mean, you, you put in, you know, they say it takes like ten thousand hours for a musician to get good. You spent those ten thousand hours in front of getting good or bad reactions in front of people that you were reading instantly. Yeah, I think that's fair. When doing that and also like uh, building the communities of other artists around that kind of performance like, uh -huh. I was really tight with my movement theater people I was really tight with my comedy people um, so that I think that was a big part of it too wow so that well and that's a that's a that's a you know a brotherhood or a sisterhood that is kind of unshakable you know when you're when you're because you, you're you're kind of out there right in the edge <laughs> you know yeah. and, and 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 fearlessly getting up and doing stuff that's whether it's improvisation or whatever it is it's getting it's putting yourself out there kind of pushing the edge let's go back a bit so so you you said you jumped in with both feet but I want I, I want the epiphany, you know, I mean, when, at what point did you go, man, this, this is, this is the life for Bass. This is what I'm going to be doing. Can you remember a time that that occurred? Was it, was it in middle school when you did the drama thing? I, yeah. The, the idea that I would do something creative for yeah. a living was in, in like middle school time, like the first time I did a play and I, and I was like, I would think I was 10 or 11 and I would, I would stay up late and um, I would use an audio cassette recorder to record Saturday Night Live and <laughs> yeah. I would like play it back and learn impressions and like people would react to me doing impressions of Dana Carvey, doing impressions of George Bush and like that, the way that that 
paid off like the rewards that I got from like performing for someone and then giving me some feedback like I was like yeah like this is this is what I want to do and that just I think everything I've done since then has been you know some variant of that kind of an exercise that's awesome there have been different epiphanies you know like there there was the general creative epiphany there was like the I'm going to do comedy epiphany there was the I'm going to go into theme park design epiphany and Knowing me in like six years, there'll be another epiphany that's sort of related <laughs> to creativity at some point, and I'll, I'll run that one out too. Well, that's great. I mean, because that you know that's how that's how we kind of bounce along in life, and I think that, that that's uh, uh, you know that's that's golden stars to you in terms of always kind of opening the horizons and looking for new new challenges and stuff. Which I think f- for us, kind of you know, I I. I humbly include myself in with this creative group of guys you know i bow to your 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 you know the time that you spent with it but but you know we you know, we didn't want to go work in a factory. <laughs> you know, I mean, we didn't want to stand on an assembly line and drill holes, or you know, or fill out spreadsheets for the accountant department or something. We we, we always wanted something new and fresh to challenge us, and I think that ah, you, you plague. I don't know if you want to call it that. It's just always pushing us along to to find the next horizon and find the next thing to grow. So so which is partly why I kind of went this direction. But but I'm jealous of you because you knew when you were like 10 or 12, you know, that this was the direction you were going to go, right? Yeah. Uh, looking back, it's easy for me to say I knew. And, and think about how I approached school. Um, uh, I was... I was a good student, so I didn't have a problem with with right. grades or education or anything like that. But the things that interested me were not—they weren't really the um, the maths and sciences. It was more the humanities and the arts and history and social studies and sociology and things. So I I was always drawn to like you know subjects of the human condition to use like a yeah. a, a lot a lofty phrase. And I was lucky that I had good support with my folks and good support with like the education system where they were able to notice that these were the things that I liked and they had opportunities in the school system to steer That's me awesome. that way. That's you know, awesome. that, that like I could get into the music program and start learning an instrument. I could, I could join the chorus. I could do the drama club. I could go to Kappa. Uh, Pittsburgh had a, a, a magnet uh, performing arts school that was basically like fame, if you remember the old TV show. Sure. Where... It was in the morning you did your academics, and in the afternoon it was like five hours of acting in theater classes. Man, so, so that's I had awesome. Those opportunities, and it was able to sort of like slowly develop like my professional skills or my my learning center, so that I was able to eventually piece together careers in these fields. Mm-hmm. So it was part it was part the epiphany, and a big part of it was the luck of having. You know the family support and the institutional support in the school systems to make it all possible. Wow, that's great. That's yeah. that's. I'm jealous. You know, I was. I, I, you know, for me, it was kind of the opposite. I went to a prep school. You know, I was supposed to be oh, a yeah. doctor or an engineer or you know one of those, a lawyer or something. And they didn't even have art classes in my in the school I was in. You know, I went to a to a. It was a Jesuit uh, uh, high school, a college preparatory. I had to go to the girls preparatory to, to get, you know, and I didn't do that till like my senior year. So I started really late and then that's probably why I've been fumbling around. I'm jealous, Baz. I, you know. <laughs> when did it, when did you stumble on the theme park thing? Like you mentioned that, you know, at first you didn't even know it was a thing. You know, none of us yeah. really did. It was just, we just went and, you know, I went to Disneyland in 1960. Uh, four, I think it was 64 or 65, first time I went to, okay. to in, in California. But uh, can you remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that very specifically because, you know, it was within the last 10 years. So okay. I, I like it. that one's fresh. And it, like all good things in life, it's from like a sequence of events of interesting decisions I made earlier that led me here. So the uh, the comedy world that I was a part of, the sketch comedy world, 
was very tight knit. Like there were a handful of groups around the country, and this is in the days before YouTube, uh, that, that were pretty prolific, and we would tour and you know send films out to film festivals and stuff. So we got to know each other, like my group in Chicago and groups from New York, Seattle, San Francisco, LA. And one of the groups was a, a group named Elephant Larry in New York City, and Stefan Lawrence is uh, a good friend of mine from that group. Uh, and Stefan now works at the head of the group in LA, which is another okay. uh, really fantastic yeah. side firm. Yeah. Um, and Stefan had grown up in Orange County, and uh, our little group of friends, every year we had a thing we called Sketch Camp, where we would pick a city and just do like a three-day retreat where we wouldn't talk about sketch, we wouldn't like do shop, we wouldn't like uh, talk shop, we wouldn't work on stuff, we would just hang out as friends and have a good time. And like one year it was Vegas, one year it was Asheville, North Carolina. And Stefan decided to have it at Disneyland in 2007, I think. And I hadn't been to a theme park in maybe 10 years for that. Uh, but I'd, always, I'd never like, lost my love for it. It just fell off my radar because I was busy doing it. Sure. Stefan decided to have Sketch Camp at Disneyland. So it was like, oh, I remember loving Disney stuff. And like, I started Googling Disney stuff and, and, and sort of like refreshed my memory of all the things that I really like adored about the Disney park. So like right. the Grim Greeny Coast song and Haunted Mansion immediately came back into my head after 10 years of never hearing it. And like the, the animatronic and the Pirates of the Caribbean whose leg is hanging out like this, uh-huh. like these tiny little details that I'd only seen like two or three times somehow had been like yeah. seared into my memory. And I remember thinking, oh wow, that's a, that's a weird thing uh-huh. that you could... <laughs> Just experienced this for such a short time and have like total recall ten years later. So uh, I went out a day early and Stefan met me and he and I went to Disneyland together before the rest of the kids got there. The sketch kids who were just going to drink and have fun. And he and I just totally nerded out. And at this point, he wasn't in the business either. And we were walking around it and thinking about it from an adult perspective and from a creative perspective. And like, oh, there's, I can see the storytelling. And like, look at these details in this, in this fence work and look at it, how the, the sidewalk is cracked. And this is Disney, so that's not like a crack that happened. That's a crack that was designed and put in there and why. And we, we had this like amazing day of just like, we rode like three rides, but we just like, uh, yeah. Soaked, soaked in every bit of design, not even knowing what the language we were speaking at the time, but like taking it all in. And then, and then, uh, you know, we hung out for the rest of that weekend. And then after the trip, Stefan's like, so I'm thinking about like moving into that business and trying it. And I think you should too. <laughs> and I was like, it's a business. And, and that's when like, it, my whole like perspective on this flipped because I was like, yeah, yeah, I could totally do that. That'd be amazing. How does that work? And then we started like looking into what it takes to design theme parks and make it and who's doing it in the business. And from that moment on, I was like, yeah, I, I could 100% do this. Was there a financial push? I mean, you know, one of the things when we're chasing our art kind of stuff and entertainment, you know, I was a starving artist for a while and it really, I literally was a starving artist because, you know, this art thing, this creative thing, sometimes it's really tough to make. I mean, when you make it, they make it big time. But when you're kind of struggling along at the middle level and stuff, there's not a whole lot of money. I mean, there's passion for what you're doing, but you're not, you're not banking anything. No, and like one of the last things that I did in the comedy world before I like went full time into theme park industry was I was working with The Onion, the uh, satirical uh, newspaper and website. And, you know, for my money, The Onion was about as good as it could get in terms of like quality. And, and you know, they, they hired me to work on uh, one of their TV shows. And it felt like I was in the pocket and like this is what I could do. But like the, the money from that was not great and once the show was over I had to jump back into the hustle and try to find another job that would be like just as exhausting and pay yeah. just as little Yeah. and I was like I, I don't think this is going to work and coincidentally I got my first like consulting gig on a 
it was a, a roller coaster for a park just outside of Shanghai. Okay. And uh, it was like the assignment was like, hey, this roller coaster is based on kung fu movies. Can you watch these sixty kung fu movies <laughs> and find awesome moments in it that would make a good roller coaster? I was like, this is a job. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. And I, I did it, and it paid like the same amount that I was making for like a week on the Onion. I'm like, I, I would much rather be doing this kind of bizarre, fun, creative work than hustling for the, the the comedy work and maybe not getting it and struggling to get by. So having having those two gigs like right next to each other, it's sort of like this is where I'm at in the comedy world. This is where I'm right. at in the theme park world. Which one of these is going to be more stable? And that was part of the appeal. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, cool. So, so, so that, I mean, it made some financial sense too. I mean, from a practical sense of just surviving, um, you know, it is because it is, you know, it's, it's less, you know, this industry is a little bit less entertainment oriented in the sense of shows. It's still, it's still entertainment, but it's sort of permanent installations as opposed to traveling shows or doing a performance and stuff. It's creating things that are going to continue to perform. So it's a little bit more stable that way. Yeah. I like to think about it uh, in terms of um, shelf life and at the onion, for example, you know, I would labor for a week trying to get like a headline of like six words just right and there is a craft to it sure. and when you when you nail it it feels great but even the best stuff that I would do there would sort of like it would catch on to critical mass for like 40 minutes and it just kind of evaporates mm-hmm. but in the theme park world you gotta think generationally yeah. because these things that we do are so expensive that you know you gotta build it to last so that this person can love it and their kids can eventually love it and their kids can eventually love it. You got to think like 30 to 40 year storytelling, which means a very specific kind of approach to solving creative problems. And you're thinking more like, you know, uh, universal and less specifics. I, I say like the onion was about headshots and theme parks about center of mass. Okay. Like you gotta, you gotta hit that appeal that like a lot of people can get something out of and if you get too specific with it it's going to have like a, a narrow shelf life so it's it's a really interesting different approach and i dig it oh cool no that's a that's that's an awesome point okay so you've been in like the theme card stuff for seven years ten years i'm sorry uh, i think seven or eight years now okay yeah. so have you seen changes happening as you got into it yeah um the, the the big changes there's sort of like a a but I think what's happening in China is like the biggest and most interesting change that um you know in America and in Europe and in Japan the theme park industry is mature and actually kind of saturated like we've got our parks we've got our uh, we have our number of people that we need to satisfy and we've met it. So there's not a whole lot of like big major parks getting built in the States or in Europe or in Japan anymore. Uh, every once in a while something will happen, like Universal's doing their stuff in Florida and in and, and Japan, but like the big action with like new parks is happening in China. And for a while it was happening in Dubai because mm-hmm. those are areas that have like emerging middle classes. and. Uh, people that are hungry for like anything to do with their family and there isn't a legacy of these kinds of uh, projects there so there's there's a big market inefficiency for lack of a better word like people in China need theme parks because they need fun, something fun to do so this this uh, this this middle ground between like the well-established stuff in, in, the, in the States and in Europe and the nothing that was here before that is getting filled in in China right now is probably the biggest, most interesting thing. Yeah, it makes sense. Well, and which also has, it's a new challenge to you and me, and I felt it is, you know, now you've already told us that you need to think more universally and more broadly so that you create something enduring for a whole different culture. 
You know, that, that you don't know about, you know. I mean, you know about what entertainment, you know the basics and the fundamentals of what, what keeps people's attention, what, you know, what blows their skirts up. But, you know, it's just like, I, I can't remember the last time I told a joke in China because, it, it, you know, they just it's, just, it's just a different thing. And comedy relies on references and all that kind of stuff. And they just don't have the same stuff. So, so there's an extra challenge there because, like you're saying, that the emerging stuff that you want to make generations of, of, you know, of interesting things happen. So it's a, it, it's a stretch, I, you know. I mean, I find it to be. Yeah, it is. And you know, part of it is that the the middle class in China is emerging so so rapidly, yeah. relative, relatively speaking. And in, in America, we didn't figure out what a theme park was until we had amusement parks for 50 years, right? Mm-hmm. You had Coney Islands, and then in 57, you had Disneyland. That's a, it's a long time to like sure. build up a... A, like an expectation of what this place is supposed to be and then exceed the expectation and it, within China you know whenever I, I work on a project and you know the chairman or the owner of the company like wants to come in like guns and blazing and like skip over that like 100 <laughs> years of development and go straight to like beating Disneyland right now right and it's hard because you kind of have to educate uh, your guests too you have to like make sure that there's a cultural understanding of what you're going to experience before you can deliver on the promise that you're making and hopefully exceed it. And that's aside from the general question that you brought up about like uh, what makes something relevant to a culture. And there is, we, we call it Western chauvinism a lot because the reality is pretty much everyone that is in this business of designing theme parks it lives either around my house in in Pasadena yeah, California yeah, yeah. or is in Orlando like it's it's these two really hyper focused spaces where all of this development gets done and we have a way of doing things that has worked but uh, the big missing chunk is like how do we speak this the, the actual language of experience to the native audience and you know explosions are universal and uh, <laughs> thrills are thrills are universal yeah. but those things are easy the things that make like when i when i first talked to you about like my my disney world impression the things that i mentioned i didn't say Space Mountain, and I didn't say Big Thunder Mountain. I said the music from the Haunted Mansion and the animatronic leg and Pirates. Like the thing that made those experiences impactful and amazing to me as a ten-year-old kid and as a forty-year-old man were not the explosions and the thrills. It was that like subtle emotional hook that resonated with me. And finding out how to do that, how to how to how to identify and enunciate that kind of an experiential moment for a Chinese audience is something that everyone's trying to figure out and we will it just takes time but it's really really tricky yeah but that's I mean that what a key what a what, you know what a key to that mystery and that you know that conundrum and that puzzle that that's what makes an enduring thing you know that's what makes it generational that's what really you know finding the you know well said and well pointed out and i think everybody should kind of take notes on that one because it it, 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 it really is it's not because that was one of my frustrations in coming to china is they yeah they want the results but they don't want to have to go through the steps and the and the and the things that, that, that have to be done to build up to that point they don't really they don't really do the story <laughs> they just want they, they want the ending with the bangs and the, all the good fun feelings but you don't get that without the you know the build up and stuff and i think and i i think that that's universal that's what's paid off and that's what's separated like a, a, a fun time from like an amazing awesome time and it, it's not every uh, not every Disney attraction was Pirates of the Caribbean with the cool leg moment you know right. there were plenty of Stitch's Great Escapes or like things that were you know um, 
not quite as impactful in there. So there's a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of like getting it not quite right before you, you figure it out. And you know, we had we've had a hundred years of experimenting in the states and in Europe to figure this out. And China is what I can't remember what the. I don't know when we want to backdate like the start of China's theme park explosion to, but I feel like it was early 2000s. It was yeah. probably around then. Yeah. So we're only we're taking like a hundred years of like trial and error, compressing it down into 20. Yeah. And it, you know, the the good thing I would say is as I've been working, I've been working on projects in China since like 2014. Okay. And each one seems to have taken a step. Uh, a, a, another step towards like a story centric or an emotional core than the previous one. I think like the lessons are being heard, but there's always that like because the timetables are so accelerated, people are they know explosions work, they know thrills work. So give me that. And if you want to do the story thing, we'll see if it works. Uh, you know, my expect I expect that like as. Chinese, uh, Chinese audiences and Chinese uh, owners and companies start to see those results. Like that, yeah. China will develop its own story structure for these kinds of experiences too. I'm just hoping I get to be a part of that conversation because I find the uh, I find the exploration fascinating. And well, I think you will. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, I, I think I think there is there is that blossoming market that that's happening. And you know, I came into it fairly early here in China, and you know, they wanted the results. They didn't want to have to deal with the story. And and but now there's more competition. You know, Disney's come into China. Universal Studios is coming into China. Um, you know, all the, we've got new competition and. Uh, all the guys that want to make theme parks that are earnestly into theme parks like my boss you know he wants to create that that enduring stuff so there's starting to be a demand for that you know um, yeah. it, it is not as sophisticated an audience as it, you know as it is in the west just because of the you know the same thing you're, you're mentioning it's a hundred years of, of that sophistication you know going from Coney Island roller coasters to you know there, there ought to be something more to this you know so yeah. interesting you know interesting developments but everything happens faster in China I mean it just bam you know I mean it just, anything you want to do it's just it, it you know things that take two years to develop in the states happen in two weeks here you know so I know is there something else you'd want to say about the challenges that are facing this industry? The, the industry is so, it's, it's weird because it is an industry. It's very expensive. It spends a lot of money. There's a lot of really talented people like working on it. But it's not like there's a, a true template for success, right? Like these, these park projects are so specific to where they happen, when they happen, who's running them and who they're for. It's really difficult to ape like the Shanghai Disney approach for a park in Qingdao or, or uh, Huizhou, right? Like, it's not the same thing. You don't have the same corporate goals. You don't have the same audience exposure to IP. You don't have the same synergistic platform development stuff happening on the side. So it makes it really tricky. And, and one of the challenges that I've had with different owners of uh, park projects is that the expectation sort of like is set by the Disney's and Universal's who are operating on a completely different, they're basically they're operating with a different set of physics. Like their park doesn't have to live or die by this like bottom line. They've got other ways to make money. They have other reasons for doing a theme park. They have, uh, They've got, you know, 50 years of design booklets and, and show Bibles that they can rely on to make sure they get it right. And they have the money to burn so they can drop like $14 billion on a park project and like that's fine by them. And when owners come in expecting to like deliver something at the quality level of a, of a Disney or a, a Universal, and their, you know, their, their expected budget is 10% of that, you, the hard thing is like finding a way to like identify what the actual expectations are and what the actual expectations of the guest and the needs of the guest are mm -hmm. and 
and having that conversation with ownership. And you know, there are some some people that really do know their audience and their, and their and their park and their brand really well. Like your boss, he's got like such a great like sense of what his company is and where it fits in this whole thing and that makes it a lot easier but there's a lot of uh, companies out there not just in China but also in you know the UAE or or even in Europe that um, have this misalignment of expectations that puts the creatives in a hard place because they have to like design the creative to meet these expectations but the ability to follow through on it is it makes it incredibly challenging so that's one of the challenges that I think faces us and I think you're right and I think that that's you know that's to put a feather in my boss's cap it's he's known where that point of good enough is perfect you know, because he, 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 you know, as he developed over the 30 years that he's been in business, he hasn't made stuff that's phenomenal and great. He made stuff that was just about right. And then it became very successful, which gave him the ability to afford the next step. Um, so, uh, and that's some kind of magic, I think. That's some kind of, a, you know, having that feeling to, to, to know when to kind of draw the line and say, that's good enough, let's go. Yeah, I think like the the goal in theme park should always be to like be better than your last park or be better than your last attraction. But well, there's a lesson be, in life, you isn't don't it? Have to really be better than I don't have to be better than Disney. Yeah, I got to be better than myself. Right. You know. And then, I mean, that's a, that's a life lesson, you know, for all of us. And no matter what yes. you're doing, you know, it's you just have to get better every day, you know, or every yeah. project or every, every whatever it is. You just you need an incremental increase in the in, in improvement. Um, right. And that's been one of my faults is I always wanted to be perfect. <laughs> you know, but, you know but, and it's and it stopped me a lot of times because, you know, I mean, that's probably what your entertainment experience kind of taught you is. It ain't going to be perfect every time, you know. You're not. You, you, sometimes you're going to fumble a line. Sometimes it's going to drop. Sometimes you're going to. There's going to be a degree of failure. Hopefully, there's 51 percent or more success. But you know, there's there's nights when it didn't happen. You know, and and yeah, I mean. If left to our own devices, you know, like I, I, I think you and I and anyone else that works in this business, if we had, you know, infinity minutes to complete yeah. a design package, we would use infinity minus one, right? Yeah. Like we will fill the time we have with our energy and our passion and our thinking to make it as good as it can be. Honestly, like we need someone that says, no, it's pencils up. This thing is out the door. It's time to, it's time to get going. And for me, like the theater stuff was that because showtime is eight o'clock, whether I think I'm ready to go or not, I got to get on stage. And no, the pursuit of perfection is actually paralysis like you were saying Mm -hmm. like you can you can always convince yourself that something isn't ready um you know one of of the one of the things we pass around the office a lot is uh, the audience never sees the show that's on paper they see the show that's in front of them Mm -hmm. so all of those design things that we sweat like i we, we had like a 10 day long discussion in our office about like if we could get like an extra like one degree of range of motion on an arm and like what's that gonna what's that gonna buy us it's like the audience isn't gonna see that 16 degrees they're gonna see the 15 and it's sometimes the producer has to come in and say no stop it you guys you're you're good like yeah it works it's what it is out there yeah well and that comes with the experience that's one of the things that that as an art director type of character that's one of the things that I kind of learned over the years is to you know what take the viewpoint of the audience what's gonna what is it gonna matter see and I came from sets and scenery where we scotch tape or gaff tape something and sort of sort of stuck it there temporarily because it was just gonna be for the you know for the video shot or the TV shot yeah. who, who you know no one was ever gonna see the back of it that was ready to fall off any second as long as it was there for the camera after that you threw it in the dumpster anyhow so you know yeah. learning the guest experience which is another big challenge for us in in the theme park industry is our audience moves you know when you were doing stage stuff you were on the stage and you could control what the audience got to see in this industry we get a percentage of that but it's got to be viewed from 
many, many viewpoints and it has to, it has to survive that. So you come from the art direction world where you've got to consider, you know, uh, you're, 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 I don't know if you, your process does this, but a lot of the art directors I work with work from like a perspective shot, and it's like, okay, so here's like the this is the image I want guests to see, and you can work to that image, but that image is going to change, it's going to parallax because people are walking through it. So right. what's that image from here? What's that image from here? Right. What's that image from back here? And figuring out how to like tell stories in dimensional space is really kind of unique to our business like um, that uh, on like a creative story level you know I can't my job isn't to write a story for the guests it's to like create the uh, create like the the ingredients so they can tell their own story about that experience because I, I can't be too specific or narrative or didactic about it I, I can only like present this world and hope that they have they can piece this story together for them and in a similar way aesthetically when you're doing that you know you set this idea of what this space looks like from a given perspective and you've got to make sure that that's got to like accommodate all the different viewpoints that could possibly happen in that area it's 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 really really tricky and you know that's why we over design these things because we're trying to anticipate so many different um yeah viewpoints possible ways are being assumed yeah yeah but i've seen i've seen you do that i've seen you you know, as we go through and we look at uh, some of the products that are being created, you know, we go to the factory and we see this and that. And I see, I, you know, I see that those same wheels turning in your brain about, hmm, you know, what if, what if we, like the other day, we moved that thing, we adjusted it a little bit to point a little bit more sideways or a little bit more down because, oh, yeah, yeah, and, it, yeah, and, yeah. and it was, yeah. and it made such a huge dramatic difference that, you folks at home, you know, wouldn't wouldn't you know necessarily appreciate because you, you first of all you didn't see how the wrong one, so you don't get to compare it. Yeah. But but we do, you know, we we get to see what's going to happen, and we get to take that viewpoint and think about that stuff. We could spend ten days talking about the orientation of that little that figure, right? And try to get it right from every angle. So you you have to like know which one which of those little problems are the most impactful and spend right. the right amount of time trying to solve it it's it's a it's a it's a really tricky puzzle but well yeah, yeah. I, I guess like we into it right yeah but it, you know the, i mean that's kind of the joy of that balancing act and i think guys like you have the experience you know you've got the track record that makes those silly seemingly silly little calls count you know and it's that it's like that 80 20 rule you know the the you know the 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 20% of stuff that you do is the really effective stuff and it's trying to do more of that 20% than doing all the other 80% of of the crap that really doesn't matter it's honing it down in this finite usually time frame for us it's usually not a budget thing sometimes it's a budget thing most of the time for us particularly in these new in China and, and you know in the United Emirates and stuff it, it, maybe not so much there but in China it's a I gotta have it now kind of thing it's very very fast what mistakes are you seeing theme guys do <laughs> Oh yeah, it's a fun one. Yeah. <laughs> um, without, uh, I'm, I'm not going to cast any stones at anyone I know because everybody, li literally everyone in the business that I've worked with is smarter than me, more talented than me, uh, nicer than me. Um, I, I always feel like the biggest schlub in a room and I love that. Uh, so everyone that's working on these things uh, is supremely talented. That said. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, Wait, should I put my safety things? glasses on here? So, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Um, the, and if I hope you don't mind that I answer this sort of like from a, an overall guest experience. No, absolutely. I think that's the right viewpoint. Yeah. Um, there's a 
that there is an over-reliance on screens, on media screens, and on uh, digital uh, technology. Um, and especially things like VR or uh, AR. I don't want to call it gimmicky, but um, I would say that uh, parks sometimes make the mistake of using a technology hmm. where that technology is like only six months away from what would be available to a consumer to take home and use at their house. That uh, putting a, a, a VR headset on walking through a room is something that you can do at a park now. Um, you'll be able to do it in your house next year. Mm-hmm. And getting back to my thought about thinking generationally, um, these things that take place on screens and on devices and in virtual reality uh, is not a generational approach, I don't think. I think that's stuff that has a very limited time uh, uh, shelf life and it's pretty limiting. And um, I, I look at the stuff that Universal did with uh, Harry Potter um, and Diagon Alley in Orlando in particular and Hogsmeade and all the parks where the ride wasn't necessarily the most amazing thing about those lands. It was more the place making and the, the physical environment you're walking through. And honestly, I feel like that taught me a lesson about uh, how if you reward the physical, reward the people for leaving their home by putting them in a world that is truly immersive and, and tactile and if at all possible responsive, you're, you're really doing something people can never get at home. Wow. And if, if you're showing a thing on a media screen, if you're puppeting a, a, a live character with media, this is awesome, but uh, it, it's like that is something that people are going to be able to get, get themselves at, at some point in the future. So you want to, you, you always want to do something that they can't do for themselves. And I think when people hear like the, the sales pitch for the technology for VR or for media stuff, um, it's very attractive and it's it's awesome and it's like inspiring and it looks really great. So it's easy to say yes. Um, but uh, my, my, my personal preference and my honest assessment is that the thing that's going to be tried and true as we move forward is the stuff that you do, wow. which is art directing physical spaces um, that people can't go to anywhere else. I have to say, and not because that's what I do, but I think that, that uh, that's profound. You, you, you know, I mean, uh, <laughs> and to me it is. It, it's, it's profound. It's, it's, uh, you, you actually turn a little light on in my head just now with that because, hmm. y- you know, there is so much technology and all that kind of stuff, but, it, but it's like, you know, seeing a video of the Northern Lights versus mm. standing there and seeing the, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I always do that even when you're taking a photograph with, with the amazing new cameras that we have in our smartphones, you know, you look at a scene and go, oh my God, that is, and you put the thing up and you do what all the thing and you click it and you go, eh, what happened? You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, it just didn't, it just didn't come to, you know, and, and that, that artistry, that skill of the photographer, you know, the professional photographers that are able to somehow capture that on the, you know, through the thing there, we get closer to it with this technology and at, at some point it starts to come home. But, but thank you for that profound thing because you're right. I mean, why? You know, we, that's happened in the home theaters. You know, we have surround sound and big giant screens. And and what's different than going to the theater now? Why do I go buy a ticket at the theater? So I can hear other people around me, you know, reacting to the movie or, or, or yeah. talking or, you know. So, wow, that's a good point. Thankfully, I get to um, make amends to any of my friends in the media production and um, AV integration businesses by saying the following. Um, I think the future and where we should be going is taking the best 
uh, lessons we can learn from the technical side of this uh, uh, computer age, the data-driven age, and applying it to the stuff that we've already mastered in terms of placemaking and uh, visual design, set design, scenic, and attractions. What I mean by that is, um, what's cool about virtual reality isn't so much that you're surrounded by images, it's that you're able to affect uh, change and control over an environment. That like in the, in the VR world, you can point your hand and then you go like this and you turn a flower pot into a snake. And that's an awesome feeling. And in the game industry, and I'm, you know, somewhat in our industry, we call this agency. That you, the, the 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 user has the agency to affect permanent and um, lasting and impactful change on their environment. The best thing we could do is take the the, the things that we've learned about uh, data. Um, and understanding where guests are, how they're interacting with the environment, and marrying that with show action and, and scenic design so that guests can actually transform the physical environment that they're in. Mm -hmm. that, that a guest can walk into a space and sort of intuitively understand how to kind of like manipulate the environment or affect change. I think like moving from a presentational to a participatory environmental experience is like where the really cool stuff is going to happen. Mm. Um, and that's about taking like the, the stuff you can do with the screen or with the media and just getting rid of the screen, right? It's the same programming, it's the same uh, if-then trees, it's the same execute this if people are doing this. It's just instead of doing it on like a tablet or a headset, you're putting it out there in the world that you're walking through. And like the little example of that is like the magic wands at Potter, right. where people can do this and you see magic happening. If you can scale that up, if you can figure out a way to to make these parks like react to people walking through them, I think that's a game changer, and that's what I would like to be looking for. Wow, that's a tough one, Baz, because that's oh yeah, that's you know that's you back on the stage reacting to the audience reaction. You know, and 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 it's not to the to the listener. In, in the singular tense, it's to the listeners, you know, which are great, all great entertainers, you know, develop that sense or that magic. You know, when Mick Jagger gets up there and starts doing his thing, you know, everybody's in the palm of his hand, you know, so, um, and that's a magic that the, mm -hmm. these guys develop and do. Um, for technology to do that, wow. You know, and I, I, I don't think it's impossible. Um, that's the big. That's impossible. Yeah, that's a, that's a, hard. Yeah, it's hard. It's a big challenge, and and um, but uh, awesome. You know, that's another another nice pearl. Thank you for that one. Sure. Cool. Okay. That's what you see in the future. How? What advice would you give to someone? that wanted to get into this business or this kind of, you know, uh, creative characters that are, I don't know, they're musicians, they're story writers, they're, they're, they're you know, technicians. What, what advice would you give people to get into this industry? I realize that one of my first bit of advice is go for it. Um, <laughs> our, our industry has a... Uh, we, we missed a generation of talent. Um, mainly because people like me didn't know it was a business and also because there weren't as many opportunities for work because China wasn't quite as booming as it was and the UAE wasn't as booming. Uh, but regardless, my generation of people, people that are like, you know, 30 to 45 years old right now, um, we missed out on being theme park folks because they went into TV or film or video games. 
Um, so there's a real hunger for people that have uh, some creative chops, know how to lead teams, and we will help you understand how to speak our, you know, the, the technical language of our business. It's about understanding how to solve creative problems and, you know, lead teams to arrive at a solution. Um, so please jump in. Um, there is uh, a couple of different approaches that you can do to break in. Obviously, like the networking and when emailing people or asking for chats, just do that. Uh, after that happens, um, my suggestion is to spend some time as a generalist. Like I came into this as a uh, as a writer, as a show writer first, and because of the company that I was working with, I got a lot of exposure to the various kinds of roles that happen in here, and I didn't have to specialize in show writing. I could kind of like learn a little bit about art direction, a little learn a little bit about uh, you know reading CAD and and understanding show set yeah. and, and interfacing with animatronics companies. Get it, taking some time to just work in like a a, a coordinator role or anything that exposes you to how we interface with all those different expertise uh, um, uh, all those different expertises because you may not necessarily want to uh, specialize in the thing that you're already specializing in um, so it's always nice to do that however if you are a composer and you're going to be a composer just start making friends there's uh, there's always room for you um, so we need we need people in the business that understand everything about the creative picture and we need people that are incredibly talented at that one tiny sliver of creativity that we need for a specific project there's room for both and if you're not already like 25 years into that one specific sliver of expertise be cool being a generalist step back see how the projects come together and Pick your uh, pick your area of focus, and you might end up like me as a creative director, you're a professional generalist. Yeah. And for my money, it's actually the most fun because I need to know a little bit about everything and uh, a lot about you know some things, but like it's it's it, it helps me to stay fresh, I'm learning new things and working with. Uh, New quirky, talented people, balafonists and musical saw players, and, and who knows what else. Well, awesome. I mean, I, I I I think you're right, and I think that that's another sort of life lesson that our this time in, in our history in human history we, there you know there's so much to know and so many things to do so many millions of paths to take that you mentioned the sliver you know going this direction and that direction almost everybody has to kind of take a sliver now to get along to to, to, to you know excel in a particular profession or genre and we're going to start missing the generalists. You know, we're starting to, there is that void that's sitting there of people that, that sort of know enough about a lot of things, you know, which is, to me, that's one of the blessings of me not really knowing what the heck my purpose in life was. Is So I went out and did everything, you know, and, and I got, I got my hands dirty with all kinds of stuff and, and <coughs> felt a lot of angst and a lot of frustration about, oh, what should I really be doing in my life it didn't gel till way later on when I went geez I know a lot about a lot of things and now I can use that stuff and I, and I notice working with kids now you know 20 year olds I call them kids sorry guys but you know 20s and 30 year olds they, you know they they know maybe a lot about this thing but they have no exposure to because there's just too much there's just too there's much too stuff much. you know so and I think this industry is still, you know, although it's been developing, it's still a bit young, you know, compared to lots and lots of other industries to where, you know, compared to just theater or, or movie making and stuff like that, it still has some room. I agree 100%. There's a lot of room. And, you know, we're going to figure out what this industry actually is together over the next you know 10 15 20 years so jump on board and help us get there
cool. So it's an exciting time, actually. Yeah, it exciting. actually is. It actually is. It, yeah. it, it is kind of a bubbling thing. So, you know, uh, I really kind of hope you don't go anywhere other than the theme park industry does. I think, you know, I think the input and then your experience that you bring to this, um, you know, the, 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 you're one of the characters that's that's really needed in, in, our, in this industry. So I hope you stick around for another 10, 15 years. Uh, although, you know, if some other, if some other whistle calls, go play, but, but, and, those of you that are listening for whistles and want to know more about this, um, I'm going to put this stuff on Facebook and I'll put it on YouTube and, and you guys can always kind of private message me or whatever. If you're, if you're looking for, you know, like Baz mentions, you know, get the word out there. I'll, I'll try to make a list of people that you can talk to or, or organizations that you could go knock on the doors of, or, you know, things of that, that, that people that are looking for talent to, to come in and, and, you know, I, that's one of the things that I like about this industry is that you really can, just like Baz has done, and I, like I've done, and you can really do all kinds of stuff. You're not that limited. You're not so pigeonholed. You know, it is still uh, still a little bit of a frontier to play with. Um, yeah. And Baz, I can't Absolutely. I can't thank you enough for for spending this time with me and taking your time out there in, in Detroit and uh, uh, doing this. So I'm, uh, thanks for the pearls of wisdom. My pleasure, Bob. Always good talking to you, and I uh, hope I get to talk to you face-to-face in China again soon. Get that music done. I can't wait to see that stuff. Um, and, yeah. and once again, Baz, thanks thanks a, a ton. This has been fun. Uh, it's been awesome, Bob. All right. Take care. Have a good night. Or a good day. I'm sorry. <laughs>